Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. You are tuned into Solutions Watch, that regular weekly program where we are looking at ways that you can improve your life and help change the world for the better. And this week we have a special treat. We have a guest who will be familiar to longtime Corbett Reporteers, Dr. Bruce Levine, who we have talked to on several occasions now, including, of course, our 2012 conversation on the anti-authoritarian mind, our 2013 conversation dissecting the DSM-5, and our 2019 conversation talking about Bruce Levine's previous book, Resisting Illegitimate Authority. But today we're going to be talking about a different book, A Profession Without Reason, which is subtitled The Crisis of Contemporary Psychiatry Untangled and Solved by Spinoza, Freethinking, and Radical Enlightenment, which is quite the uh, the large uh, agenda there. So let's bring him onto the program. Dr. Bruce Levine, thank you again for your time today. Great to be back with you, James. All right, let's dive into this conversation. And I guess to set the table for the conversation, we're talking about a profession without reason. So let's just let's just talk about that title for a moment. What what are we talking about? What, why is this called a profession without reason? What does this have to do with Spinoza? And what is the central conceit of this book? Well, Spinoza is often viewed as the apostle of reason. And so the original idea for the title was that part of the problem of psychiatry being this outcome failure, this theoretical failure, this failure across the board, which we could get into if you're interested, but is that it, it, part of it, it just lacks reason. It lacks logic. Of course, 20 seconds after I came up with that title, I realized some people would be thinking like, well, are you saying psychiatry, there's no reason for it to exist? And I thought like, well, I guess I came up with a double entendre, but the original the original reason for that title was just talking about this profession that has absolutely no reason. And that Spinoza would even 350 years ago, as he went through all the aspects of it, it would be apparent to him. And you do that in the book in a, a very interesting way. I, I hope people will actually read this book. Uh, there, there's an interesting way that you tie Spinoza's bi biography into the current state of psychiatry and what it has evolved or devolved into. And I think uh, listeners of our previous conversations will have some idea of some of the context and content of that critique of modern psychiatry, including such things as, although I, I think probably still 90% of the population maybe more, don't realize it, the entire chemical imbalance theory of mental disorders ha was never actually even really seriously proffered. It was never actually um, stated openly by any psychiatric association or whatever, and it's certainly not defended or believed or advocated um, openly by any of the big names in psychiatry today. Things like that that are really quite surprising, because of course we all know it's a chemical imbalance, and you take an SSRI to make your brain work better or something along those lines, right? Right, doctor? Is that how right. that works? I mean, I, I've been talking about the fact that researchers discarded this theory that people have low levels of serotonin that causes them depression. They, they discarded this 30 years ago, but the interesting question was why it persisted. And so it was really interesting uh, last year, a dissident uh, critically thinking psychiatrist, there are a few in the world. This one is Joanna Moncrief. Um, out of uh, England there, she came uh, out with this uh, review article 
talking about just going through all the hundreds of different studies trying to look at the relationship between serotonin and depression and showed that there was just no evidence of any kind of relationship. And what ended up happening was, it was interesting, was for whatever reason, the mainstream media finally picked this story up and it went huge. Russell Brand was doing uh, YouTube videos mocking this stuff because he had believed it and it just got big. And the other interesting thing that happened off of it is what did mainstream psychiatry do? They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't disagree. They said like, well, we never said this existed. So I guess in common parlance, what we're talking about is gaslighting. They tried to, you know, hear all of these people, almost every other person who's ever gone to a psychiatrist or even a GP, most of these uh, SSRI selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors are prescribed by GPs. And they've all been told the story about that you're depressed because you have low levels of depression. But psychiatry said, well, it had nothing to do with us. <laughs> nothing, they didn't want to blame it. So they, got the, they dug themselves into a deeper, deeper hole. And so that's one of the one of the many reasons that I talk about why psychiatry is in deep crisis. The leading figures uh, are talking about their their outcomes are, are abysmal, bleak. Those are the exact words from the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. The Times, gutless New York Times, which had, should have known and been reporting this for 30 years, only started reporting this after they got the cover from NIMH director, this guy named Thomas Insel. The DSM we've talked about before, you and I, big shot psychiatrist 10 years back, have been laughing at the invalidity of that. Um, and so you've got their major areas that that they, the DSM, the outcomes are horrible, the chemical imbalance theory. So the whole profession is in crisis, which it always is, will be. <laughs> and they always dig out. The last way they've dug out is by partnering up with drug companies. And that's the way they can control the mainstream media because the drug, because the mainstream media is afraid to offend drug companies who are connected up with psychiatry. We could go on and on here. Um, but I know you, this is not what you want to focus on the whole show. But the, but the bottom, the, one of the reasons for writing this book was that I thought psychiatry was not was so pathetic. It was so to the point of really for any critical free thinker, they didn't really want to be, read about it. And I had to find a way to make it interesting. And I thought Spinoza was the perfect guy because a lot of the things that he thought about 350 years ago were deeply relevant to psychiatry issues of validity, which he called adequate ideas, um, issues of like the connection between uh, uh, ecclesiastic authorities, religious authorities controlling the politics and censorship and banishment. All those things existed in his time. And I think there would be no doubt that Spinoza would take a look at psychiatry and, and also their explanations now that they're offering of why they continue to push this chemical imbalance theory, which was because they thought it would help people feel good about their depression and take their antidepressants. And that is exactly what religion does. It doesn't care about truth or facts. Religion tries to help you manage your emotions and people believe that they know the right way to help you. And that's exactly the way psychiatry's function. So I think Spinoza would see enormous parallels between the way psychiatry is working today in uh, working together symbiotically with the state, with the whole neoliberal society, and the way um, the theological uh, authorities, the ecclesiastic authorities worked together symbiotically with the monarchy um, for hundreds during his time. I think that that parallel would be obvious to him. Right. And I think it would be important at this point in the conversation, because perhaps what you just said might have just offended a large portion of the, the audience. Uh, this is not a, a, a against spirituality per se, or the, 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 the uh, space for that in human life. It is against the, as you say, the ecclesiastical authorities who are using 
the the dawn, the garb of spirituality to impose a type of understanding of uh, human reason upon people. And in that on that in that specific regard, you talk about uh, Spinoza's concept of amor de intellectualis. What on earth is this, and what does it have to do with <laughs> mental health? Uh, you're one of the few guys who've interviewed me who's actually asked me that question. So this is be fun for me. Thank you, James. So what you're referring to in plain English is the intellectual love of God. All right. And so to back it up a little bit, I think to understand this whole concept of Spinoza's this intellectual love of God, you have to understand his concept of God. All right. And this is going to be really, you know, for people who don't completely unfamiliar with Spinoza, this is this might be a little bit difficult, but because Spinoza can be read as a pantheist, somebody who is somebody who's an atheist, or as the German, uh, some German poets viewed him as the God intoxicated man. So how do, how could that happen? How could he have such a? How could you make a case for all three? Well. It's because his view of God is so dramatically different. It almost has nothing to do with the God of most organized religions, the God of the, the movie, The Ten Commandments. His God is not this, this anthropomorphic, this man-like, a big guy in the sky, big Santa Claus kind of guy who, if you pray to correctly, I guess if you go to the right the right denomination, right church, and you pray to correctly, he can get you, uh, this God can get you a, a hot date or maybe help you win the lottery. You know, God, God, Spinoza's God is not this kind of person you can manipulate. You know, another one, one way of putting it is you can love God to your benefit, Spinoza's God. I'll, I'll explain exactly what Spinoza's God is in a second, but God does not love you. God does not take a special interest in you, at least Spinoza's God. And so what is Spinoza's God? Well, he uses the term God or nature. So specifically for Spinoza, God is synonymous with nature. And by nature, Spinoza certainly means the birds, the bees, the flowers and the trees, the mountains and the rivers. But a lot more than that, like everything is nature for Spinoza. So you're what the triangles, rectangles, circles, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Um, e square, you know, E equal MC squared, everything. What's going on in your head right now, James? What's going on in my head? Our thoughts, our feelings, God. Everything, all of reality for Spinoza is God. And so, you know, for Spinoza, if the big part, big words for Spinoza to understand them in as brief a time as we have here is there's nothing more important for Spinoza than freedom, okay? And there's nothing more important for Spinoza than power. Okay, but his idea of power is not pushing people around. His idea of freedom is certainly freedom from ecclesiastical authorities who are trying to force him, you know, to not say what he was really on his mind or and freedom from uh, state authorities, but also freedom from the tyranny of his own passions, his own fear. So and that's another big concept for Spinoza that hopefully we'll get into a little important is it's again, it should be common sense that the more scared you are, the more afraid of your fear. The, the less rational you're going to be, the less logical, basically the dumber, the stupider you're going to be. And so a big part of the intellectual love of God, to put it this way, is, is that the more that you care, more than just understand, okay? And so I think he used the word love because he really wanted it to be emotional, not just this kind of understanding. So so in religion, you know, you have faith in God, you know, you worship God. But for Spinoza, it's very kind of scientific, but a passionate emotional science, which is you you understand, but you don't just, you know, kind of understand without emotion. You love God. And if you can love all of this reality for Spinoza, 
Uh, and by the way, there's a lot of similarities between Spinoza and the Stoics and modern cognitive behavioral therapy, but I think Spinoza is much more powerful, much more interesting. Hopefully I can make that clear. And so for Spinoza, the more that you really are, are loving this nature, loving this reality, a lot of great things happen to you. First of all, you're not so concerned about validating your biases, which is what most people are walking around with. They're just looking to validate their biases. So they become very boring. They just seek information that validates their bias and they don't look at other information that doesn't. Whereas if you really love the truth of things, which is loving nature, loving Spinoza's God, you realize what's really empowering, what really sets you free is to gain more of an understanding of that, an understanding of the way the world really works scientifically, politically, but also what's going on in your own head, to be deadly, totally honest about the reality of your own thoughts, your own feelings. So I, I don't know I could go on and on here, but I'll stop let you <laughs> let you comment, ask a question. No, it's, a, it's an excellent uh, encapsulation and obviously. Obviously, people need to read the book for sort of the more of the context of that. But that is that at least provides a focus for what we're we're doing here is trying to better understand this world that we love and we want to to know how it works and and that spirit of curiosity and openness to the experience of uh, and understanding other people's experience I think is all relevant. But bringing this conversation down from the heavens back <laughs> perhaps to something more brass tacks. Uh, towards the end of the book, you talk about uh, um, questions that Spinoza might have had about the state of modern-day psychiatry, including question number one, are psychiatrists and psychologists being used by authorities to compel individuals to adjust to a society that is unjust and dehumanizing? Question number two, are biological theories of mental illness diverting attention from societal ills that cause emotional suffering and behavioral disturbances? Question number three, are psychiatrists and psychologists being used to pathologize dissenters so as to marginalize them? And on that note, I'll just plug my ongoing um, uh, editorial series that I'm writing right now, Dissent into Madness, talking about the pathologization of political dissent. And number four, are mental health professionals undermining mutual aid and other for forms of non-hierarchical organization and democracy? All right, I think question number four gets to the heart of what I want to be discussing with you here today. Mutual aid and other forms of non-hierarchical organization and democracy. What does that mean in the context of mental health? Okay, so mutual aid is the famous book by the anarchist Peter Kropotkin. And a lot of the, these concepts uh, for people, they're going to sound, you know, like, real. you know, this makes sense. This is common sense. And, and I think a lot of people are surprised to understand that these are key crucial concepts to, you know, anarchism. The idea that we don't need some authority coercing and controlling us, that the idea that we can form a society, certainly form a group without hierarchy, um, we can form it democratically. We don't. Um, we can. We can all. We can all kind of help one another. So this this idea um, is really important in a lot of mental health treatments for a lot of reasons. So I shouldn't call it treatment because it's something much better than when you think of typical psychiatric treatment. So a lot of people out there who are ex patients 
um, very angry with psychiatry for ruining many years of their life, forcing them into hospitals, forcing diagnoses on them, forcing drugs in them, some cases forcing electroshock. And so mainly it started really in the 1960s, 1970s. You have this patients activist movement. Um, a lot of some of these people call themselves a uh, mad pride. Some of them are psychiatric survivors. But all of them, what they all had in common was very anti-authoritarian idea that you know, just because these guys are authorities, that doesn't mean we should take them seriously. They've ruined our lives. So a lot of what they started to think about is like, well, how can we help each other? And more and more like why it makes sense for us to help each other more than these psychiatrists. So a lot of these people who started what we'll end up talking about peer-to-peer -peer support, okay, realized that a lot of, if, if they were extremely suicidal, maybe they even made suicide attempts, maybe they were having visions, maybe they were having some, you know, ideas that people thought were crazy. They were, they were, a lot of the world was experiencing them as frightening. Okay. And part of the, again, common sense in Spinoza 101 here is realizing that once you're scared, especially if you're phony about it and you're incongruent and you're not believing it, which is a lot of mental health professionals, you're dangerous. Okay. You're very, cause you're going to be a controlling and you're going to do a lot of damage. And so what these folks understood was that like for a variety of reasons, it's better for us to help ourselves. Number one is we've had experience. Maybe some of these mental health professionals know a few things about being depressed or anxious. Maybe they've gone through that themselves, but a lot of them have not actually tried to kill themselves or they've not had, you know, heard voices or they have had these serious kind of altered states that we have. So we've had them. We've had that experience. Don't say this experience doesn't matter. It counts. OK, so that's number one. Number two, that's really important is that we're not afraid of them. We went through these things here, and here's the, probably one of the most important things is, is that we don't have liability fears. We don't have the, the fear that when we're talking to one another, if we don't control somebody by forcing them in a hospital, forcing them on medication, that we're going to get sued by somebody. We're going to get sued by a family member. We're going to lose our license. Something horrible is going to happen to our career, which every mental health professional, they're lying. If they're saying that doesn't go through their head. Now, some mental health professionals handle that anxiety a lot better than others. They're honest with themselves. Maybe they're even honest with their clients. But the vast majority of these psychiatrists are scared and, they, and they're not even they're not even honest with themselves. And that makes you violent when you're scared. You're, you're going to and you're not even in touch with it. And so that's what a lot of these patients experience. The other thing, let me throw another thing in there. What's really valuable about these peer to peer supports. A lot of these folks who have been forced into hospitalizations, you know, forced to be patients for a long time. They've been treated like pariahs. They've been treated like people who have nothing to offer to society, that they're just burdens. Their family starts to view them as a burden. Society views them as a burden. Once they're in these peer-to-peer -peer supports, lo and behold, they're, they, can, they find they have value. They have information to impart a, to somebody else in that group. They have empathy. They have compassion. Maybe they even have a sense of humor to kind of lighten their load. And all of a sudden you see their self-esteem improves dramatically. So I think part, that's, that, that's some of the reasons why these peer-to-peer -peer supports, and I mentioned a few of them in, in, in the book there. I mentioned this um, a Western Mass Recovery Community. It's, it's morphed into something else called the Wildflower Alliance. Uh, the Wildflower Alliance. I talk about the National Power center, talk about Freedom Center. So there's a, a bunch of these that are going around all over the country. They're still kind of underground, still kind of fringe. And of course, establishment psychiatry would like to get you to believe that they know the best. 
even though their record, especially with these people who are labeled, quote, seriously mental ill, and I'm talking about, quote, schizophrenics, their record is horrible. You know, we, we, we and I could go in through the details of their the outcomes of dealing with these professionals versus the versus working with, with these folks. And for a lot of rational reasons, Spinoza wouldn't have to look at the empirical outcomes. Of this. He could understand this logically and rationally just off of a lot of what I'm saying, why these people would be better off. Now, perhaps it's because I am an anarchist, so I am somewhat biased here, but this seems like the more logical approach to finding mental health. Um, one that does not rely on some outside expert who has no personal relationship with the person involved and may see them may see them once a week, maybe once a year, who knows, just to write a prescription for something, versus the idea of people who have actual knowledge of this person and know their experience and know something about their history and can help them to deal with what the things that they are experiencing. That seems like a more natural form of mental health awareness. But let's talk about some specific examples of this. You, you just named a few, the Wildflower Alliance, the Freedom Center. Talk about some of these, these groups that exist and how they function. Well, all of those uh, believe in all of those things I talk about. They all believe in self-determination. They all believe in, in personal empowerment. They all believe that somebody should be able to call themselves whatever they want. If they want to believe that the reasons why they are the way they are um, have to do with with some biochemistry, if they want to, if they even want to take medication. Now, a lot of these folks in these groups are anti-medicate. They've had horrible experiences with psychiatric medication, but I don't know anybody who is a dissonant mental health professional like myself or anybody who's an ex-patient uh, psychiatric survivor who is anti-psychiatric uh, drugs, but they just are honest about them. These are not, these are not drugs equivalent. They're not like uh, diabetes correcting a, a insulin chemical imbalance. They're not like, they take the edge off just like street drugs. And, you know, they do it in different ways with different adverse effects. And for some people, they, they, they need to use these drugs to be able to help them function. So I don't know anybody. It's a real myth. Uh, what happens to a lot of people who are critics of psychiatry were called the pill shamers. That's immediately like, you know, and, and it's just, I've, I've just never heard anybody who is anti, you know, anti-drug. We just want to be honest about what these things do and what they don't do so that you have informed choice. All right. So that's what a lot of these folks, they believe in that. They believe in self-determination. They're really adamant about anybody course and anybody. Uh, they're adamant. If somebody wants to call themselves uh, schizophrenic, hey, go ahead and call yourself that. But don't make me call myself that, because for a lot of people, that is incredibly damaging. That's incredibly stigmatizing all of these psychiatric diagnostic labels. But they recognize that for other people out there, they embrace their psychiatric diagnostic labels. So it's it's really it does. In, when I talk to a lot of these folks who are in these uh groups, they, they, they remind me so much of all the people who are politically conscious anarchists. Now, some of these folks are also politically an conscious anarchists, but the vast majority might say, from my experience, over 90 percent, they, they've never they don't they don't really equate what they're doing or what is anarchism. But it, it but once they hear about it, I guess they go, this stuff makes sense. And it and it and it just works. I mean, just to kind of give people in the audience a concrete example is like, let's say, 
you know, James, I'm, I'm like right now, I'm like wanting, you know, wanting to, you know, kill myself. My life is all horrible, you know, and do I really want to be, you know, thrown into a psychiatric emergency room with some stranger who's trying to figure out, well, does Levine, is he manic, bipolar, I guess they changed the name as they call everybody now, bipolar disorder? Is he schizophrenic? Is he schizoaffective? Oh, that's going to make me feel a lot of good. I got somebody who's scared of me, who's just now just deciding how they're going to control me with some meaningless, invalid scientific diagnosis. Or what do I want? I want what any human being wants. I want somebody who's not afraid of me, who's curious. They're, they're really curious. Like, what, why, why is this guy wanting to kill himself here right now? And they're compassionate. And in these kind of groups that I describe, that's what they're able to do to offer much more easily that curiosity and that compassion because they're not terrified of people. And this is, I know it sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm harping on this, but it's just such a huge, huge thing for Spinoza. And it's such a huge component that I have a whole chapter in a profession without reason on fear, because it's one of those things that's mental health professionals, you know, that it dictates why one of the reasons why they're so horrible at what they're doing when, because they're in positions a lot where they're just institutionally frightened the people and it keeps them stupid and it keeps them controlling and it keeps them in a mode where they can't really be helpful. You know, you raise an important point there about the idea of the, the, oh, you're a pill shamer or something along those lines. Because when I do speak about these types of issues, I invariably hear from some people in the audience to say, well, I've been on such and such medication and it helps me. And I, you know, that's my experience. I, I, I think what you're talking about is the fact that that experience that that person has had where they feel that they have, that their life has improved because of that medication is valid. And that compassionate mental health would say, okay, that is your valid experience of your own life. I'm going to take you at your face value that that is useful to you. And that's perfectly valid. No one's trying to stop anyone from taking some sort of medication that they feel is helping them or something along those lines. Am I, am I in the ballpark there? Right. I think the key point, and this is a major point is, is that nobody's we're, we're kind of all of these folks that who are I'm talking about are anti-coercion, anti-proselytizing. So of course there's people out there who their particular religious faith has helped them dramatically. And there's a big difference, you know. I certainly, and I don't think you would, James, either, ever try to tell somebody that they're stupid for like allowing them their beliefs, th this irrational belief system, to have helped their life, you know. But we would get upset if they tried to impose their belief system on to us when it was a belief system that made no sense. So for so a lot of what mental health, once you understand that psychiatry and their theories, their chemical imbalance theory that they're finally discarding, you know, although and denying that they ever pushed it and this is gone, this kind of stuff and their treatment outcomes, if you take a look at them scientifically, are not really any better than placebos, even for these SSRIs. If you take a look at the studies, we can get into detail on them. And in many cases, they're worse. I can quote some studies for you. If you take a look at it, they have nothing scientifically to offer. They're a faith. They're a belief system that works for certain kinds of people. But you know, the idea that they're allowed to, uh, with state sanctioning, coerce and control people to to force that down their throat, especially these poor folks out there who they've suffered it and it's made their life worse. That's insult to injury. You know, it, it's, you, you know, you forced this stuff down my throat for years of my life and it's just ruined years. I've got horrible adverse effects, you know, from the drugs. It's not helped me at all. You know, I'm, I have more symptoms now than ever and you're still forcing this stuff on me. So that's the issue here is like once you take a look 
at this whole profession without reason as not really having any scientific merit at all. It's just a belief system that works for certain people. Then you realize that it, there's no way society should allow it to be shoved down people's throats. Yeah. To me, this is exactly parallel to my political anarchism, where, of course, any people can come together through voluntary mutual association to form whatever type of community they want to form. And I'm not going to come in and impose force to stop them from doing that. That's their voluntary mutual consent. As long as it is based on that principle, then right. I think it's uh, valid at any rate. Um, all right. Uh, you did intimate earlier that these kinds of groups, these non-hierarchical organizations that have come together, are still largely underground. Which raises the question, A, how did you, a, well, I won't say mainstream, but at least a practicing clinical psychologist who probably is not uh, looked at warily by these types of groups, uh, how did you find out about them? How can other people find out about these types of groups? Well, I think, I, well, I know exactly how I found out that them, about, it was serendipity, and it was in the, in the early 1990s when I was so embarrassed by my profession, which had become increasingly pathologizing and drugging. They're moving into kids. And so basically, I, I, I think just out of wanting to separate myself from a profession that embarrassed me, I started to write some things. And I published something. wasn't all that, um, you know, it wasn't all that fierce, but it was spotted by somebody in this movement who, um, and this was in like 1994, I believe, a guy's name was uh, David Oakes is David Oakes. He's still alive. And he was head of a, some uh, a patients' rights organization. At the time, it's called Support Coalition International. It's morphed into Mind Freedom. And David was an interesting guy. He was a guy who went to Harvard. You know, psychiatrists, you know, he had a rough time there. And, and psychiatrists ruined his life for a few years. And he became a major activist. But he's also super smart, super skilled political organizer. And so he would be out there looking <laughs> for any kind of dissonant mental health professional. And he would be letting them know, hey, you're not alone, which I thought I was, really. I mean, at some level, I knew there had to be other guys like me. I mean, there can't be everyone in my profession is a total joke. But what he turned me on to was not just that there were dissonant mental health professionals, dissident psychologists, dissident psychiatrists, was that there was this whole world of people called psychiatric survivors. I had never heard that term up until like 1994. And so what happened was, you know, I got turned on to different organizations, different conferences, and so there's, you know, different groups. I could throw out a few of them among among these for professionals and other folks. There's something called the International Society for Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry, which I'm a part of. There's groups like the National Empowerment Center that I've spoken at. There's some of these other groups that I've talked, you know, that I've talked about already here. Wildflower Alliance. There's, so there's these different groups. NARPA is another group, National Alliance for Rights Protection. Um, with the other ASAP, but something like that, National Association for Rights and Protection. And, you know, so there's these groups that I've spoken at, that I've met people at, lots, lot form friendships there. And so it's kind of underground um, still, um, but I know, you know, there's, a, there's, there's people now I have confidence that in every city, there's a couple of guys like me. And the more that I get out there, so I write in places like Counterpunch. And I used to write in a lot more places that they, people could be seen. But now there's a lot more kind of censorship around any kind of criticism of psychiatry. It's sort of sad. A lot of places that I could normally write uh, critiques of psychiatry, critiques of antidepressants, which were on the left, um, they're a little more concerned, not counterpunch, but we'll publish everything I write. So the places that are really left anti-authoritarian publications will publish. Certainly I publish in Madden America 
which is the kind of go-to webzine, uh, madinamerica.com. I just put out an article a few days ago there, and it, that's the go-to webzine for people who are um, dissident mental health professionals, journalists, investigative reporters, ex-patients. So word gets out. Uh, eventually, uh, folks hopefully we'll hear about it. And so a lot of our job for me and a lot of my buddies here are, are, are doing things like this and, and exposing more people to the idea that there is a kind of an underground of this. In certain parts of society, certain parts of the world, certain parts of the of the states here, there, there, there's it's less underground. So in places like Massachusetts and places like uh, Oregon, it's a little bit more overground. In a part where, where I am here in the Midwest here, it's very much underground. All right. Well, before we wrap up this conversation, I think we should at least try to steel man the other side of the argument, which is to say that just because it's non-hierarchical doesn't mean that it's going to be good or effective, which uh, presumably if we're trying to create a profession with reason, we should be looking at those types of things. And as a Canadian, my mind immediately turns to the events that happened at the Oak Ridge Mental Health uh, Facility in the late 1970s, early 1980s under Dr. Elliot Barker who had the idea of, well, let's let the psych criminal psychopaths uh, form sort of therapy in which they, they're therapists to other criminal psychopaths. What could go wrong? And that was an incredible fiasco. Apparently, Dr. Barker was inspired by Dr. Ewan Cameron, the MK Ultra, uh, Montreal-based um, uh, doctor. But uh, at any rate, uh, if we just turn to the actual results of that, we find that normal criminal psychopaths have a 60% recidivism rate. They go on to reoffend at a rate of 60%. Uh, the graduates of Barker's program apparently had an 80% recidivism rate, which shows that demonstrably that that experiment in non-hierarchical therapy did not work. Um, what can we say about um, experiments well, like that? Well, I don't, I don't know the details of what went on in that. I mean, this it was Dr. Barker's. I don't know how much it was non-hierarchical. I, I, I can't comment on that, but I can tell you, certainly there are places, uh, another, just to kind of switch a little gears here, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, when it was first formed, was also very much anarchist inspired. Uh, so the guy, Bill Wilson, he loved Peter Kropotkin. He loved anarchism. And he understood that he was an anti-authoritarian problem drinker. And he wanted to create an atmosphere where nobody was telling me what the hell to do here. Dr. Levine? <laughs> Hello? Hello? Are you still there? I had asked about Dr. Barker's experiment at Oak Ridge, and you were talking about Alcoholics Anonymous and the foundation of that in an anarchist philosophy. And I don't know where you want to pick up the thread from there, but I guess the point is um, people who are skeptics, answering people who are skeptics of the idea that non-hierarchical organizations can uh, provide mental health in the same way that proper professional uh, do. Well, I think the best answer to that is that certainly there are non-hierarchical hierarchical groups that don't help everybody. So nothing helps everybody. But I think you have to know what who you are as a person. If you're somebody who really loves to have authorities boss you around <laughs> and you're not really kind of sensitive to whether that authority like actually knows what they're talking about or they're full of it, you know, you're you're somebody who's what I would call a more authoritarian 
person who you really, when you have some anxious, you want to give away your freedom to some authority, regardless of whether they know what they're talking about or not. I guess, you know, you're going to be un more uncomfortable in a non-hierarchical group. Whereas if you're somebody who is more anti-authoritarian, which is, doesn't mean that you reject all authority. I mean, there's plenty of people who are anti-authoritarians who love their mechanics. They think like these mechanics, my mechanic is smart, knows everything about cars. I'll certainly hand my car over to my mechanic. But you, when you've had experience with the mental health professionals, specifically psychiatry, you know, who's gotten it wrong over and over again, jacked up your dosages, ruined your life more, put you in hospitals, ruined your life more, you know, said they you know, quoted theories to you that weren't true. And you have like at a certain point in your life, they, they've lost, they have no legitimacy as authority. And you're also somebody who's comfortable being around people who may not have any degrees, but they have life experience. They have the they, they seem to be people who actually really care. They're smart. Um, do you feel better hanging out with them? Now, to all of these non-hierarchical groups, whether they're AA 12-step groups or any kind of full, you know, non-hierarchical groups, do they always work? No. <laughs> Especially the AA, I should say a little bit something about people who are in court-ordered uh, AA groups. They're not AA anymore. They're forced, they're not voluntary. They destroy the whole kind of idea of what, what's supposed to go on. So, but let's let's say that you, you're in a group that really is voluntaristic, mutual aid, non-hierarchical, but maybe everybody in that group are people that you just don't respect, you don't like, they're saying stuff that doesn't make any sense to you. So the idea that anything, just because it's a non-hierarchical group, is going to be helpful, that's, that's ridiculous. But for certain people, they can readily say that being in the right kind of non-hierarchical group, and we're not even talking, we're not necessarily even just talking about self-help groups. There are all kinds of sort of non-hierarchical, my publisher there, AK Press, is a mutual aid, non-hierarchical group, no bosses, no bullshit. That's their, that's their, uh, that's their slogan, you know, and it works great. You know, they publish, you know, a bunch of books every year. They do a great job with my, I publish two books with AK Press. So non-hierarchical organizations work great for some people. But the truth of it is, there are a lot of people who are uncomfortable not having an authority telling them what to do, and they're not going to be real comfortable in those groups. Yeah. Yeah. You make a, another incredibly important point there is that, yeah, people always are, are throughout their life are deferring to authority, but legitimate authority, which is why I think your previous book was Resisting Illegitimate Authority, which we talked about right. before. And it, again, it's my personal choice. I put my trust in this particular person because they have demonstrated that they know about this. Um, anyway, I, I, very important points. There's so much more to discuss here, obviously, but we can only skim the surface in a conversation like that. That's why people will, of course, get and read the book, A Profession Without Reason, which elaborates on these themes in much, much greater detail. I think it is worth everybody's time and attention, so I will direct them to this. I will direct them to the Mad in America site that you referenced earlier. Are there any other yes. website online resources that you would direct people to if they're interested in this topic? Well, my website, uh, brucelevine.net, I have a whole all my articles. Uh, uh, they're there for free, so people don't have to buy a book if they don't have any money. And I've got the I've got videos there that they can look at. And, uh, you know, in terms of other websites, off the top of my head, I would say just go to madinamerica.com. I write for them. Every significant dissident mental health professional, psychiatrist, psychologist, uh, 
uh, investigative reporter. It was, by the way, created by this investigative reporter, Robert Whitaker. Um, but they have a, a great staff. They have personal stories of people who, without any degrees at all, who've gone through uh, severe problems. So I, I would really check out Mad, Mad in America if you're interested in a bunch of stuff I'm talking about here. Um, and like I say, you could look at my website there, brucelevine.net. Excellent. Well, plenty of food for thought in today's conversation. I appreciate that. And I appreciate your time. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you, James. Always a pleasure.